Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Indies Podcast. I'm your host, Chloe Spencer. Most of us have dreams. Maybe you want to be a professional chef, or you want to be a stockbroker on Wall Street, or a farmhand at a dude ranch in Cody, Wyoming. You know, I'm not going to judge you. Whatever, whatever is your dream, it's your dream. And my dream was to be a full-time working journalist. Roughly two years ago, I was offered what I thought would be my dream job, a producer position at a small news station in the Midwest. Some of you may know that I got my start in games journalism while interning at Kotaku, and after leaving Kotaku, I thought that this would be the perfect launch to my career as a journalist. But I had to walk away from it. Like many of my peers, I graduated thousands of dollars in debt. This job would have benefits, but would only pay me $12 an hour, which is what I was making when I was a student, and, as a matter of fact, that's less than what I was making when I was interning at Kotaku. Although I had a degree, and I earned it in three years, no less, I wouldn't be paid like a college-educated person. This was particularly problematic, not just when taking into account my student debt, but other things. For example, I didn't have money for rent and a security deposit for a new apartment. I didn't even have a down payment for a car, which I would need if I was going to be working full-time. I couldn't just rely on buses anymore to get around. And on top of that, I was recovering from some serious health issues, and if they were going to flare up again, I knew that I wouldn't be able to pay those bills. Now, I could have taken on this job. I could have taken it and got a second job to deal with the debt. But when I was in college, I was juggling up to four different jobs at once, and by this point in my life, I was too burned out to deal with it anymore. Rather than being a gateway to my future, this job was a gateway to, well, hell. A hell consisting of poverty and insurmountable debt. As painful as it was at the time to give up my dreams, I don't have any regrets. It's been nice to spend the past two years not worrying if I can pay my bills or trying to find creative ways to eat on a budget that doesn't also cause my health problems to flare up. These are the realities that many of us face, indie devs included, but they are realities that we may not always talk about in indie games journalism. And last month on Twitter, there was a heated discourse between creatives over the idea of quitting your job to pursue your dream full-time. Jason Heller, the author of Strange Stars, was the one who initially suggested this, and the tweet went viral. It has since been deleted. Indie devs had responded to this tweet, citing their own concerns with pursuing game development full-time. Honestly, some of their responses surprised me. Often, in stories about game development, Indie devs may mention that they quit their jobs to pursue their passion projects. We see this a lot of the times on Kickstarters, for example. But the saturation of these stories in media may lead us, as gamers, to believe that this is the path that most devs take, and this is not the case. And when I read these responses, I realized that while we talk a lot about indie games, we don't talk enough about how indie devs balance their day jobs with their development work. So I wanted to reach out to indie devs to learn a little bit more about their individual experiences and efforts in making their games. Due to time constraints, these devs were not available to sit down to chat on this podcast. However, they did write 
thoughtful, detailed responses to a series of questions that I sent them. One of these devs is Jan, who leads Colossal Games, which has two point-and-click games set for release this year, Inspector Waffles and Antenna Dilemma. He started building prototypes for games back in 2015, and within the past two years, he began his work on his adventure games. Within that short amount of time, he's already seen success. Antenna Dilemma's demo placed 7th overall in the 2018 Adventure Game Jam. But Jan's success didn't come without its own share of struggles. He's an IT analyst by day, and he works on his games in the evening. He averages about 2-3 to three hours a night working on his games, and roughly 4-5 to five hours on the weekends. However, he also tries not to work on games every day. Jan admits that a few months ago, he worked too hard on his games. He explained, I love doing it, and it's easy to forget everything else. Now, I force myself to take breaks. I'm not unhappy about it. Taking time is better for my games and for my health. When you are a solo dev, you have to do everything. Jan explained that when it comes to everything, this entails story, art, and marketing. So emotionally, he says, seeing someone do a fan art or a media talking about your game is something which makes me very happy because this is the last step of all the work I've done before. Jan has learned that taking breaks is mandatory, and he's learned that he can't do everything on his own. For example, he says, I can translate my game into my native language, French, but my games are in English. I started to do this for Inspector Waffles, and it took me so much time, way more than I had expected. I'll ask for help from French translators when time comes, because I have to focus on so many other things. Luckily, Jan has found a great amount of support within the point-and-click community. He says, I feel lucky to be part of this awesome group of people. I also had the opportunity to talk with Bob Conway, the creator of the visual novel Yearning, a Gay Story, otherwise known as Yags. He's also worked on three other visual novels for different game jams in the past. He began his journey as a game dev in 2017, which is when he started laying the groundwork for Yags. Bob is a software engineer, so most of his development work is done on the weekends. He confessed the challenge in dev work is finding the time for it without neglecting his personal life. And dev work does that. He explains, I get out of the house less than I used to, and at points where there there's been particular stress thanks to art delays or having to manage artists or the state of the game dev project, it does become a problem, especially when work has also been stressful. He also said, I took a leave from work when I released Yeggs because I was having issues managing both a full-time job and Yeggs, both in terms of time and on a mental and emotional level. It ended up being the best decision I made throughout all of my game dev progress. During these difficult times, Bob was able to also rely on his husband for emotional support. He says, even outside of game dev, he's always my rock and has his way of calming me down and helping me work through things when I'm freaking out. Bob also said that his online friends that he's met through game jams and dev communities are amazing. He says that it's really nice to be able to commiserate about problems and REMP code with them. Both Jan and Bob admitted that they would love to work on their games full-time, but due to the financial uncertainties of being indie devs, it's just not a possibility for either of them. Bob actually says that he wouldn't want to be a full-time developer. He said, I don't wish that I was a full-time developer as a job because I think that would suck the remaining enjoyment out of it for me. He later added, forcing myself to do it well enough to live on would ruin that enjoyment. 
For now, the two seem overall happy with where they're at in their game dev careers. I also wanted to take the time to sit down with my colleagues at Game Luster and talk to them about their personal experiences working towards their goals. While not many of us are game devs, the struggle of working towards a particular dream is shared by all of us. Hey everybody, so now I'm kind of sitting down with my colleagues here and we're going to be talking a little bit more sort of about what I learned from the indie devs and kind of our opinions in regards to the whole uh, lifestyle that indie de- that some indie devs lead. Um, I'm sitting here with guys, feel free to jump in and introduce yourselves. Hey, this is Robert, news editor and all that kind of stuff. This is Austin, the reviews and features editor and all that kind of stuff. Coolio. I, I claim copyright infringement. <laughs> All that kind of stuff is my stuff. <laughs> Take me to court over it. <laughs> All right. So I was able to kind of sit down, and while I wasn't able to have the devs join us for this podcast due to like a bunch of kind of um, time constraints and sort of schedule constraints and everything, they still were able to kind of send me a lot of information about uh, sort of like how they go about making their games and things like that. Um, and one of the things that I kind of wanted to bring up here was, do you think that we talk enough about indie devs themselves and not just their games? Um, and then kind of the reason why I bring this up is because when I see Kickstarters for a lot of indie games, a lot of times the devs might mention that they quit their job to work on the game or that they decided to form their own company. Um, we kind of saw that, I think, with the last uh, one of... It was uh, Cy- Born Punk, the cyberpunk uh, point-and-click adventure. He mentioned that he had stopped doing what he was doing full-time to go and work on the game. And I think that that's a common narrative. And so I wanted to know, do you guys think that we talk about the devs enough? Or is it mostly just to focus on the games themselves? You know, I, I feel like we do talk about... Well, maybe not enough, but we do talk about indie game devs a lot. Um, and I think it, for me... I feel like my attention to it all started with Indie Game, the movie, um, which, you know, highlighted several indie devs like um, Team Meat for Meat Boy and Phil Fish, I believe. Um, But maybe it's just the industry that we work in. Like, you know, we're game journalists, so we're kind of more in tune. But I see, you know, I follow a lot of indie game devs on Twitter, and I, I feel like there's enough in the news about them too, about their struggles or, you know, just like how they're doing with their games that I I never exactly got the impression that we don't talk about them as much, you know? Well, I'm kind of of two minds of it. Cause for me, I think we talk about indie devs way more than we do triple a devs, like as people, Mm -hmm. I think most of the narrative around triple a devs is they suck or they (laughs) made this game, they added loot boxes. There's just like this ambiguous they, it, group, entity. But whenever you talk about indie devs, you're usually talking about them by name. You know, like Matt Thorson and his team created Celeste. Mm -hmm. You're not just those guys, right? So I'm glad that we talk about indie devs kind of more on a personal level than we talk about AAA devs. But I think with both, we should be talking about them a lot more as people mm-hmm. rather than they are these beings called developers that give us video games and we demand more all the time 
because they're not people they're just machines creating games you know i feel like uh you know there's some exemptions to that though like todd howard or gabe newell you know yeah but do we know like we don't really talk about what they actually do you know we don't get to know Mm -hmm. about their day-to-day every time they go to the office what are they doing it's just you know yeah todd howard make god howard excuse me makes elder scrolls (laughs) gabe gaben gives us steam sales but what (laughs) what does he do every day you know Right. Yeah. I think that there was kind of when I sort of started thinking about this uh, episode and kind of planning for this episode, I kind of realized that for me personally, what I think that we talk about a lot is the the games. And I just don't see like a lot of kind of conversation surrounding kind of the work style and sort of the work schedule for those individual devs. Um, I mean, I remember reading Jason Schreier's book, uh, what it was, Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, um, when it first came out, and that kind of gave me sort of a more well-rounded kind of window into what it's like to be an indie dev working on games as well as like some AAA games. So I thought that that was um, pretty interesting. But aside from that, um, and aside from this recent, this other recent story that we're talking about, I haven't. I guess seen a lot of instances of talking about the devs them uh, the dev work style them themselves, um, but to your point, Robert, I do think that talking about these kinds of things more and kind of talking about the individual devs more, both in the indie sphere and the AAA sphere, it kind of helps to give us more. It makes them, I guess, it humanizes them in a way because you were saying you were mentioning how, especially when it comes to AAA games, it seems like we refer to them as this they um and it seems like maybe we don't gamers i should say don't entirely understand kind of what goes into these projects and what goes into making these games yeah and i kind of want to point out the this recent game that came out devil may cry 5 is kind of a good shining example of putting the people behind the game in more of a spotlight because a lot of the marketing behind DMC5, aside from it being, you know, hey, Devil May Cry is back, like after 11 years, we don't talk about that thing by Ninja Theory, even though I kind of think it's an all right game. But a lot of the marketing wasn't just it's back, but it's that Hideaki Atsuno is back. The person behind, you know, Devil May Cry 2 and 3 and 4 which I think was really cool to see. It wasn't just that Capcom's developing Double May Cry 5. It's Hideaki Itsuno and Matt Walker. They're here. They're producing this game that has been so good. And I would love to see more of that happen in the AAA industry, but I would also love to see that happen in the indie sphere. And we've kind of seen it, especially recently since the indie games, like, atmosphere has been around for a while right where you'll see games like from the creators of x like another Mm -hmm. indie game that was super popular right right austin do you have anything that you wanted to add um you know i i just um i think that social media kind of um gives me the perception that you know, I know what these people are working on, especially, you know, mm-hmm. since like really starting to use Twitter recently, like right. I can, you know, 
I can see the human side of these developers. And um, so for me, I just kind of feel like we get a good balance. Yeah, I think that I mostly learn about devs and kind of their lifestyles and kind of their their working the their works just kind of from seeing them tweet on social media or um, seeing like their Facebook posts and things like that. I found that that was kind of a really good way to kind of get to know individual devs and also get to know their projects more. And I also want to highlight the the game awards. I am so stoked nice. that that's becoming an annual thing and i know it was pretty cringy five years ago and there are some bits of it that are still a little bit like iffy but seeing the actual human beings walk up on stage to accept these awards about all of this hard work they've done you know i i constantly think of cory barlog the guy mm -hmm. behind um god of war the writing for it mm -hmm. like him tearing up on stage like that broke this veil for me that it wasn't Sony Santa Monica that developed God of War. It was Corey Barlock and all these people banding together. And in the same way, seeing Matt Thorson get up on stage with his team of literally five other people, that's it. And they accept this award for Celeste. You see the tears in their eyes. Like they're so proud of this work they've done. It's so cool to see. And it, really puts a face to the game where you're thinking i'm just i'm not looking out for the celeste 2 i'm looking out for matt dorson's next project mm -hmm. right yeah yeah and you you might remember that video that he posted after seeing the reviews for god of war and he was like tearing up and everything you know mm -hmm. yeah that was great yeah so do you personally kind of feel like you understand the struggles that devs go through? Or do you think that this is something that isn't mentioned in game journalism enough? God, I, f I feel like, you know, I can't code at all. And just like, you know, I, I, I think of um, Concerned Ape, the, I forget their developer's real name, unfortunately. Um, yeah. yeah, for... Um, for stardew valley and like you know he's one guy and so he made this huge game huge as in like very popular and successful and um i feel like you know we we focused a lot on that um or a lot of features for websites did and that kind of um gives me an idea of what they go through but like god i can't even imagine how difficult their job is especially when people like put their other jobs on the line and their personal life and everything. If you're trying to succeed in this industry, it is tough, especially if you're making an indie game even more so without the backer of a publisher, you know? Yeah. 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 That's kind of why I like to make a point of if I think I really am going to like this game, I am not opposed to buying at full price. Because, right. I mean, sure, it's good for me in the end, in the long run, to save money, right? Like, that's just a natural fact of life. But I'm a big enough fan of video games in general, and I want the industry to flourish as much as it has, but without loot boxes and shit. But <laughs> if I can say, hey, I spent $20 on Steam for Celeste, and after Steam's huge cuts, like, I know that six people who worked super hard on this game got, like, two or three bucks from me, that is fine. Like, I, I'm really happy with that, you know? Yeah.
Yeah, I wouldn't have mind throwing sixty bucks at Stardew Valley. Oh yeah, right, for sure. Yeah, I, mean, I, got, I got way more than than what was it, fifteen twenty bucks? I got way more out of that. Mm-hmm. But Hundreds of hours. <laughs> I I think there's definitely a place for uh, documentaries or in depth features where journalists shadow a bunch of developers from all walks of life, like from a single person developing an indie game like Eric Barone with Stardew Valley all the way up to a day in the life of Hideaki Tsuno directing uh, Dragon's Dogma 2 or something. I would love to see documentaries like that where we get to see what their daily lives are like because I don't think the average gamer or even like hardcore game journalists, hardcore gamers in general, I there's a large majority of them that I think don't understand what game development is like. And me included. I'm not going to pretend I know right. how easy it is to make a video game. But and I'm guilty of this, but I've seen constant comments online with almost any game where someone says, I mean, I can't imagine it's that hard to add X to that game. <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> you know, and I, I'm guilty of that. I've totally said that before. I've totally written that sentence before. And it can be something as simple as like, it's totally not hard to make that gun look green instead of black. And sure, that sounds like a very simple thing to do, like mentally, right? It's just like, cool, right. just change the hex code from 0000, 000, 000, 000 to like whatever a, green, a good green hex code is, because I can't think of one right now. But I'm willing to bet on the dev side, that's like three hours of work for something that like doesn't matter to them. And you know... Oh, oh well, sorry. No, 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 go ahead. Um... Speaking of like documentaries or documenting the devs, um, I suggest watching No Clip on mm -hmm. YouTube. They have some very good stuff from AAA all the way to indie. I know that Supergiant Games they're doing a series on Pyre, and I, I watched the first episode, and you you really get a feel for the people, or not Pyre, sorry, but um, Hades, and you really get a feel for the people behind the game, and they had one on fallout 76 as much as i loathe to say that name um <laughs> they, they had a documentary on that and stuff so they're really good uh but there's i think there's not enough of it i would totally be down to do something like that you know tm trademark that's uh, that's our thing right we, yeah <laughs> that's us copyright right <laughs> calling it now yeah <laughs> I think that it would be really cool to see more doc as you were saying, as you both were saying, I should say, um, more documentaries of devs themselves on like a day in the life of a dev. Cause even though, you know, I'm, y'all may know that I'm kind of working on my own little game right now. And that's just kind of whenever I can find like the spare time for it. And even then I don't really think I understand everything that other devs may do or like kind of their own strategies for how to work on their games and kind of talking to some of the developers uh, for this particular episode. Um, it was interesting to kind of see how they were just finding ways to sort of carve out their time. But then it was also kind of a balance of, I need to carve out time to work on this, but I also need to spend time with my family and I need to avoid burnout. Uh, mm. That was another big kind of thing that they brought up in their conversations. Yeah, burnout's a real bitch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Especially when you're working freelance or like even in that where you're doing full-time job plus all this extra stuff on the side. 
that is kind of between the line of hobby and work. Right. Right. It's so easy to just feel like you're losing your, your creative thread or you've lost all the will to do this and have fun with it because you're eight hours working at wherever you work totally drained you for that day. Right. Yeah. One of the devs that I actually spoke to, um, Bob, who was the creator of Yearning a Gay Story, which I played for Indie Power Hour, um, he actually said that he would not want to work on his games full time because he was concerned that it would kind of suck the joy out of it for him. Mm. Um, so kind of one thing I also wanted to bring up, I know that while not all of us are, you know, game devs, I'm wondering if anyone here happen to have some sort of personal hobby that they thought about doing full time but decided not to and just kind of talk about reasons why. Oof. You know, um I used to like do some sort of creative writing and obviously I took a different route. Um are we talking about just any hobby? Yeah, any hobby. Yeah. Anything that you thought I enjoy this so much that I could do it every single day, but I'm going not. I'm okay. not going to. I didn't want to like just start about creative writing in a video games podcast, but you know, um, sort of related to video games. I kind of got my start writing in general on RuneScape forums. I was like eight years old writing stories and stuff, and um, you know, I, I, I at one point I like considered maybe doing something, writing something, but. Uh, it's just, I mean, I don't really have any formal fiction training, but, um, plus just like the time it takes to write a book, which I can imagine like the process kind of like game development. It just takes so many years and so much passion. And, you know, sometimes you have to put aside personal stuff to get it done. Right. Maybe sometime. I'm always thinking of stuff just like, oh, this would be cool if I, I read this. But then if it doesn't exist, well, I could write it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of in the same boat. Uh, like, for me, video games are obviously a hobby for me, but mm-hmm. I, I still fully intend to try and make that my full-time gig if possible. Like, mm-hmm. writing game reviews, features, covering video games. That's something I've always wanted to do since I was young. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, on the side, like more recently, maybe in the past three or four years, I've been doing a lot more podcasts. Hey, what up, Podcast Nation? This is podcasting right now. Um, <laughs> and I didn't think that that'd be something I'd fall in love with as much as I have. But I mean, I've been doing so many podcasts in the past few years, like the past year alone. There are some weeks where I'm recording three or four in one week, which wow. feels, yeah. That feels great, and it'd feel even better if I could, for once in my life, say, go to squarespace.com slash podcast name here and get 10% off your first. Like, that'd be so cool to say to me. Oh, that would be so cool. Right? And I would love to live that life. So for me, I'm, I want to turn these hobbies of mine into full-time gigs because I fully believe in the idea of if you're doing what you love for work, you're not working a day in your life. That whole spiel. Right. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, there was a time in my life where I really liked writing short stories. Mm-hmm. I would never publish them or anything, but I just kind of save them. And I hit this point where I thought, well, I either need to publish these or this is kind of a waste of time. Right. Uh, and it kind of hit me that I think publishing those is a lot harder because you're standing on your own, creating something, creating something that's 
fictitious that in the long run doesn't matter kind of right like it's not gonna affect the world much unless it's like a really good story and i found it tough to want to publish something like that and feel critiqued about things that i can't really defend other than i liked writing the story so i wrote this story cool um so picking back up what you were kind of mentioning robert when it came to sort of your short stories you didn't really think about publishing them um and you mentioned like having to kind of defend certain aspects of your story so would you say that would you say that kind of publishing them and kind of putting them in sort of i guess the eye of people who happen to be critical would that kind of take the joy away from short story writing for for you yeah and i think it's because it's writing specifically uh mm -hmm. creative writing i guess because when you're in a podcast you i mean you can still stay say stuff that can be taken out of context you know and it could easily be turned against you like i'm pretty sure in a podcast about a japanese reality tv show i've said something along the lines of yep lollies are fine in anime <laughs> and you know i mean out of context it's like really bad but i think in context it was fine but when it comes to creative writing especially i always end up thinking back to my high school days doing literature and even in college doing a little bit of literature reading and interpretation and i've always believed that you can read any jane austen work or any you know walt whitman poem and you can interpret it one way your professor can interpret it another way but walt whitman himself may have interpreted it a fucking other way and it right. doesn't it kind of doesn't matter at that point where it's great if a piece of writing can do can make you feel something and change your life i'm all for that but i didn't want to be responsible for i wrote this short story about you know xyz and some people on the internet are like oh this is like an allegory for you know civil rights in the 1960s in america and i'm like no nah, it's just the fantasy thing about a dragon and a boy like, <laughs> it's you know and i kind of didn't want to deal with that and i felt like it would just ruin this this creative process for me where i would start second guessing myself and being like okay is this a dragon or is this actually a representation of martin luther king <laughs> you know and oh my god I, I don't get that kind of creative burnout whenever i'm doing podcasts or whenever i'm writing something about video games because in some ways the video game stuff is based in fact even reviews like there are parts of it that are based in fact where you can defend your opinion of a thing because the thing itself does exist you can play that game experience the same thing and form a, an opinion of it you know right So kind of circling back to the devs, um, the devs mentioned that one of their biggest reasons for working full time was due to money and rising living expenses. Gosh, rising living expense. Oh, my gosh. OK, oh, expenses. expenses, expenses, expenses. OK, <laughs> there we go. That should not be that hard to say, but it is. Basically, money is money hard. Is hard. Exactly. Life is hard. <laughs> and then. I saw earlier this week that a story had come out about the creators of Dwarf Fortress who are now putting their game on Steam because the devs have to deal with rising healthcare costs. And they used to rely entirely on crowdfunding. And so I wanted to know, um, for those of you who have read the story or are familiar kind of with Dwarf Fortress and its history, what was your reaction to it? Well, um, 
it was pretty surprising. I mean, you, who would expect to see Dwarf Fortress on Steam? And it's always been free, right? Right. Um, but I, I totally understand this move. Like, I don't want to get too political, but, man, healthcare is expensive. And, um, honestly, like, I think... I think, you know, he's providing unique features to this mm-hmm. um, in, in the Steam release. So it's not just going to be like uh, the free version or where you could, you know, just get the free version off the site and not support him. So there's going to be some extra added stuff, which, you know, I think is probably just a good move to do e- even if there was, you know, affordable health care, basically. Right. Um, it's kind of shocking, you know. Like this guy who's been crowdfunded. I, I guess I assume that he would get some money out of it, but not enough. Um, I don't know what my point I was trying to make. I'm conflicted. All right, <laughs> like, well, I'm not conflicted. I think he made a good choice. He's got to support himself. It's, I don't know what his full time job is or if he's lived off of it before, but like. You know, you got to do what you got to do. And a game like Dwarf Fortress, it's definitely worth it. Yeah, I mean, I kind of, I agree. Uh, oh, I do have this question of why not on Epic Game Store? Like, I'm not shilling Epic Game Store, <laughs> but he'd get more money out of it. I'm just yeah, saying. if he did exclusivity oh. with it. Because I know Phoenix yeah. Point, the developers uh, approached Epic for it specifically and secured funding for quite a while if he did it with right. um epic games and i don't know if like they would fund him personally you know they might give him but funds he, for his games but it would definitely he'd definitely get profit from selling it but i think i mean he'd get a bigger cut yeah of every purchase which is kind of the main point there but i also think there's probably right. a wider audience on steam to be honest like i think the steam yeah. crowd would cater more towards uh dwarf fortress you know no and that's totally fair but i think it's i think it's good for him to do this but i think it's also a shame that he has to do this you know i mean you got to do what you got to do but it's it just sucks that this indie dev who's been working on this game for what feels like two thousand years (laughs) basically has to finally has to finally cave and be like okay i'm putting it on a marketplace now because i i have to not because i want to right Yeah, I think that it was just when they kind of mentioned the whole thing in relation to the rising healthcare costs, that's something that that's that's just so hard to think about, um, especially when it comes to kind of how high if if you guys know, it, I do work in like the healthcare industry and like I actually work in kind of insurance specifically, and that's sort of my full time job. Um, and so knowing that like you sell plans that have high deductibles, you know, high, uh, high copays, high premium prices, it's really hard to keep up, especially uh, as the years go by. And um, given that premiums, like for your sort of like your monthly kind of payment for your insurance, that goes up the older that you get. Um, I was honestly kind of surprised that they were able to avoid putting it out on Steam for so long, just because the prices are so high now. Mm-hmm. yeah it's a it's a real shame and i mean it's it's hard to talk about the story without getting a little bit political right because right? yep. the entire story is rooted in it yeah but there's a lot about america that sucks <laughs> and 
the the rise in cost of healthcare is easily one of the many major ones that suck. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that I've kind of touched base on all of my different points here, but I was going to open the floor to you all and see if you had anything that you wanted to say or kind of any closing thoughts or anything that you also wanted to bring up. I think the indie game scene is doing pretty well right now from what I can see. We've had quite a few very good games coming out, and I think that the more popular they become, the more um, that developers will be supported, you know? There are plenty of great publishers out there that support indie devs like Chucklefish, for example. Um, and honestly, like I think people should just keep doing what they're doing, and they're definitely going to get rewarded for it. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I do sometimes worry that the indie game sphere is becoming almost too saturated. Because mm-hmm. there, there are so many indie games out there. You know, people complain like, oh, there's so many AAA games, I can't even catch up. Like, be glad you're not including indie yep. games because you're just drowning. Mm-hmm. You're dead. <laughs> there's nothing you can do. And... It's it's a tough scene to watch because for every indie game that breaks out and gets popular and gets you know nine out of ten reviews on all the gaming websites, there's at least a hundred who haven't, and then a hundred thousand more who just aren't that great, you know. Right. And it's always tough to think that because giving criticism is is tough you like you know you need it but at the same time you don't want to crush someone's dreams and no it's it's really hard to say i I found it harder to say this indie game sucks compared to when i have to say this triple a game sucks Mm -hmm. because the triple a game sucks Mm -hmm. there's usually some kind of bigger industrial complex thing going on whether it's the publisher the developer or something like the the team itself isn't working well together. Like there is a lot of extraneous problems that could arise that could lead to a triple A game being bad. But when you have to say an indie game is bad, you're usually saying, "Hey, you one, two, or three people, your work sucks." You specifically, yeah, you know. And it's tough saying that, and and that probably contributes a bit to the indie burnout in a way because you're putting your life blood sweat tears into this one game this one little game and it could be the worst thing ever and you don't really know until it's out there you know while that's true i think that healthy criticism does um and competition for that matter does kind of um mean that you know people should strive for higher quality indie games and there are some games that are very simple that can still do very well, you know? I think Minute, I believe that's what it's mm. called. Simplistic graphics, pretty simple concept, and, you know, it, it got picked up by Devolver. Just do something unique and kind of keep going. And, um, I mean, I think, you know, it might take more than one try, but not every prolific author, author got, you know, their first book published. Right. So. Right. Yep. Yeah. Well, thank you all for joining me today on the podcast.
It's been a lot of fun. While a lot of us love video games, whether they're AAA or indies, we could all benefit from learning more about the devs themselves. When we play games, it's easy to just think of the game as a product or a piece of entertainment, but that's a far too simplified view. As gamers, we may not consider the amount of effort that's invested into a game, personally, financially, and emotionally. Robert mentioned earlier seeing the Celeste devs take home awards for their game and the joy on their faces made him root for them a little bit. Game awards, as well as stories, help us to understand the people behind the games that we love, and maybe helps us to understand the work itself a little bit better. When we learn more about the experiences of devs on a personal level, as we did earlier with Jan and Bob in this podcast, we develop a sort of empathy. We realize how many hours they put into this game, the sacrifices that they make, and the ever-so-delicate ways that they need to balance their lifestyle in order to make things work. The biggest thing that I've taken away from producing this episode is that we need more in-depth documentaries or stories in the lives of devs and their day-to-day lifestyles. So, to all my listeners, I hope that this episode gave you a helpful window or insight into the world of devs. Thank you again for joining me on The Indies.